Hi, I'm Jenna. And I'm Mark. And you're listening to Cincinnati Zoo Tales. Hey everybody, welcome back to Cincinnati Zoo Tales. Yeah guys, we've got a great show lined up today. We're being joined by Mandy Pritchard, who is the team leader of the World of Insect here at the zoo. We're really excited to have you on to talk about some of our maybe lesser respected animals, but they deserve a lot of respect. They're really fascinating, so we're glad to have you on today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about insects. I think it's really interesting when somebody becomes... Do you consider yourself an entomologist? Uh, yeah, I mean, I certainly am not as scientific as most people would assume an entomologist would be. I'm more of an insect keeper. I always say I'm not a scientist, I'm a keeper, but okay. yeah, generically I say that. I grew up loving bugs, but you don't think of it as... And I used to say, I want to be an entomologist when I grow up, for, you know, for a few years. <laughs> but then it's like, how do you actually get a job in that field? And what are people doing? And yeah, so how did you know you wanted to work with insects? And, you know, did you start at another zoo? How did you get here at the Cincinnati Zoo? Yeah, most of the time when people pursue a career in entomology, they end up being some part of pest control. Um, interesting. Yeah, so, well, that's where the money is, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that makes, makes sense. sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, but for me, I grew up being um, very outdoorsy. I was constantly in my backyard flipping rocks, looking for snakes, looking for bugs, um, bringing all kinds of stuff into the house that I'm sure my parents didn't want me to. <laughs> um, so it started at a really young age, definitely. And then in high school, actually, I had to make an insect collection. And I was just hooked. I was like, these are so fascinating. I could study insects for the rest of my life and still not know a darn thing. So yeah, let's do that. Let's study something with bugs, something in science, right? So I went to Miami University and studied zoology and heard about the internship program at the zoo, actually. And I applied to that. And I thought, oh, there's no way. Like, it's going to be, like, a really hard internship to get. I think I sent my application in on, like, the last day. <laughs> um, <laughs> but nonetheless, um, they called me back. And that was back in 2010. And, you know, I, like I said, I thought it was going to be really competitive. And I, it is. And it is increasingly competitive. But at the time, not a lot of people were applying for the insectarium. Yes. They're like, are you sure you meant insectarium? <laughs> you want to work with bugs? I'm like, yes, absolutely. Um, so they were happy to have me. And the keepers, when I showed up on the first day, were like, wait, you want to be here? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Way more fun than someone who kind of like didn't get one of their first picks and ended up there. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, and then I've just been around ever since. It was like, right place, right time, kind of what you hear for most zookeepers, yeah. right? You either move across the country or you're in the right place at the right time. And that's just how it worked out. So I've been here ever since. So this is the only zoo I've ever worked at. And I am from Cincinnati, born and raised. So Perfect. I'm lucky to work in my backyard. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, awesome. I have a question about when you do, oh, now I can't even think of the word. What You collect the insects and what is that called? Oh, like when you pin them or yes, preserve you pin them? them. Yes. Mm -hmm. Are you finding them alive and then you are pinning like please tell me about that yeah because i'll tell as you an insect lover <laughs> i can imagine that's a tricky like yeah i don't know it's actually a conversation we've had in our department a lot and with like you know when we give tours to universities we'll talk about kind of our feelings on that yeah and yeah at the time in high school it was like here's the assignment do it and what you would do and what i think people still do is you would go out and you'd catch live insects and you would put them in what you call a kill jar and it has like a dispatching agent in it that kills the insect so 
I didn't think much about that at the time. It was like, this is the assignment. It's what I do. But now I'm like, wait, that's horrible. Yeah. (laughs) Hold on. There's better ways. And nowadays there are much better ways, right? Like we all have a smartphone in our pocket. We can pull out iNaturalist or something. Yeah. And you can identify species that way. Like you don't need to kill something and stick it in a box. Yeah. you know, there's um, there's still applications for it that I think are good. You know, if you're working in a university and you're doing actual studies on on insects and you need to, like, have a collection for that purpose, that's fine. That's great. But a high school kid making a bug collection, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, it feels a little icky to me now. But it's, Yeah, it's so yeah. interesting. As you grow up, I used to catch bugs all the time and think I was making them mansions in these, like, boxes. You were trapping them. Yeah, what was I doing? <laughs> You did yeah, mention you this high school bug collection. It like kind of inspired you to take the next step. Do you remember any specific bugs that you had collected that were really cool or re- really interesting at the time? I found a Luna moth and a Polyphemus moth, um, which, I, if you're not familiar, are just these huge, giant silkworm moths. And the Luna moth is just massive and green. Yeah. Excuse me, green. And uh, Polyphemus has like the big, yeah. They're just absolutely gorgeous. So that so was cool. like, wow. I yeah. feel like you see one, like, once a summer, and yeah. it's amazing. <laughs> if you're lucky. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, so cool. Okay, so you loved insects, got started here, and then did you have a lot to learn, or did you learn it through your internship, or, you know, did you learn it in college about? Not about how to care? take care yeah, of bugs. Not at all. No, I learned the science side of things, right, in college, but the actual hands-on experience all came, right, from the, uh, the internship here. So um, I had kept pets in general. I had worked at pet stores before, uh-huh. so I kind of had a tiny bit of like animal husbandry knowledge, but I was I was clueless. So I learned everything I know from the keepers that taught me. So awesome. thank you. <laughs> thank you, keepers that taught me. <laughs> yeah, because not a lot of people take care of bugs, right? Uh, right. So it's pretty specialized. And then you guys have four you know, people that work that are insect keepers in your department, and you kind of all specialize in certain areas, right? Or you focus maybe more on certain areas. What areas are you most interested in or focusing on? Yeah, that's right. We do. So we have four full-time keepers, and um, personally, I take care of the bearing beetles that we're going to talk about today and anything that is like an orthopteran, so like grasshoppers, uh, katydids, and their kin. They're so cool. And, you know, kind of a handful of other things. That's me. And then other keepers do beetles and cockroaches, uh, aquatic species, walking sticks, all of it's separated out and everybody kind of has their own focus. Everyone can take care of everything, but Mm -hmm. we have more specialized knowledge in our own cultures, we call them. I'm sure there are so so many insects to know and it would be so hard to specialize. The diversity (laughs) in the insect kingdom is absolutely massive it's oh, mind-blowing it's how many yeah. different species there are so. yeah i couldn't name all the antelope species i name all the ant species yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh right <laughs> no way that's amazing awesome so yeah you mentioned the burying beetles and i think it's really cool that here at the cincinnati zoo we do have a program that is actually breeding and releasing these endangered, maybe we'll get into that a little bit later, beetles that need our help. And you are leading this effort. So I'm so excited to hear more about this. And I have so many questions about how people, and it's not just insects, but in general, the small animals that aren't seen on a daily basis or live underground, how do people find out they're endangered? (laughs) And how do they get counts on them? And who's actually caring enough to pay attention in the first place? Because I'm guessing you weren't the one who 
found out they're endangered. You know, you're not the one who knew, you know, figured that all out. So somebody else took that upon themselves to see how many burying beetles were left. Okay, so we'll talk about that, but tell us a little bit about the burying beetles first, I guess. Sure. So tell us what they are, what they look like, yeah. where you can find them. Just in general, the burying beetle, so that's B-U-R-Y, burying as in burying things. Um, they are a species of beetle that is about an inch and a half long. They're black with these beautiful orange markings on them. And they belong to a family of insects called sylphidae. So everything in that family eats dead stuff. <laughs> the, the vultures burying. of the insects. <laughs> the burying. At least they're kind enough to bury their food first. But they um, they specialize in carrion, basically. So there's there's two different major groups within that family. Some focus on just munching on carcasses, and some actually take more care to bury them underground and raise their young on it. And that's what these beetles do. So we actually have two of them with us, yeah. right? We do, yeah. Yes. So yeah, let me get one out for you. I know this is all just audio, but we can describe it, right? So check out this gorgeous beetle. This yeah, is you a did female. Their markings. They are beautiful. Yeah, you can tell the males and females apart because they have different markings on their heads. So they both have this kind of like arrow shape between their antenna, but then closer to their mandible, she has that tiny little triangle, and the male has this larger sort of tombstone shape, which is kind of appropriate, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a yeah. huge difference. Yeah. So it's really neat that it's, um, there's sexual dimorphism. Yeah. And it's also really handy because we have to uh, house them individually because we keep track of their pedigree, basically, for breeding purposes. So it's really convenient that they have different markings yeah. to yeah. indicate that. <laughs> there's oh, other ways to tell, but you can just look at their heads. So yeah, Manny brought them to us in these clear, like, acrylic containers with wet paper towel. Yep, and there's food and in there, too, for them. The adults eat other insects. Okay. Um, so they are being fed mealworms and waxworms awesome. in, in the zoo. And yeah, there's wet paper towel in there for them to burrow into. The species is nocturnal. So right now they would normally just be underground, chilling, not doing much. So she's kind of wondering why the heck I just pulled her yeah, out of her paper her. towel. <laughs> Woke her up in the middle yeah. of the night for her. <laughs> and then on the front of each container, we have a little card that indicates uh, male or female. It has their own individual number. It indicates who their parents were, like which wow. um, brood they come from what generation they are. There's all kinds of information on here. Yeah. Which is really important because you cannot inbreed this species at all. Most insects, it doesn't much matter. A lot of the stuff we keep at the building has, frankly, probably been inbred for 20, 30 years. Um, but with burying beetles, after just a generation or two of inbreeding, their larval success, the number of babies that they have, just drops off to nothing. Mm -hmm. So it's really wow. important that we don't uh, inbreed them. Yeah. yeah. How many of these do we have at the zoo? How many do you have in insect house? Right now I have just over 200 of them. Wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So you've so, got 200 of these acrylic containers individually labeled yep. with all of their pedigree. You can tell everyone's ancestors. Mm -hmm. and, wow. Yeah. And it's kept in a, uh, a little handy Excel sheet as well, which I used to jokingly refer to as like match.com. <laughs> then I realized that's really dated. So I'm like, okay, let's change it to Tinder. <laughs> so I run Tinder for ABBs. Oh ABB is what we call them, by the way, for American Bearing Beetle. Wow, they're super cool. So, okay, so then how do you decide who goes with who? I mean, is that something you're doing or is there a program or... Yeah, so that is something that I do here in-house. There is like an overarching program. They were an SSP program. Um, so there's three other institutions that are working with this species. So occasionally we'll trade livestock with them for genetic diversity. Occasionally we'll actually go out to Nebraska where they are still found in the wild and we'll collect a couple of founders 
bring them mm -hmm. back to the zoo and then breed them into our current population. So there's all kinds of ways to ensure genetic diversity, but then the labeling becomes really important because we cannot breed anything more than a second cousin together yeah. or less than a second cousin together. Well, I hope you're more organized than I am. <laughs> <laughs> That's where the spreadsheet comes in. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so they're nocturnal, the adults eat insects, mm -hmm. and the larvae eat the carrion. That's right, yes. So their life cycle is pretty interesting. Um, they, as adults, they will find a carcass, and they use their antenna. They've got, like, olfactory organs in their antenna. They can sniff, I guess you would say, generically. <laughs> um, so they'll find a carcass that, um, you know, uh, has expired somewhat recently. Um, and we're talking about something small, not like a deer carcass. They're going after like a pigeon or a rat-sized carcass. And hopefully a male and female will end up on it. And they will fight off all the other burying beetles because there's other species as well, okay. right? So they have some relatives in the area, um, but they'll fight off every other beetle that they can and to the victor go the spoils. So the winning male and female pair of whatever species uh, will bury that carcass underground. And they'll do that by like excavating dirt from under it. It's really wild it's to watch. It's so incredible. They're yeah. strong enough to do that. Yeah. Yeah, and the, yeah, they have, obviously Move. they don't have tools, they just have their arms, so they just brush the dirt. How long does that take? It is fast. It is like hours. Yeah. No way. Wow, yeah. these teeny little oh tiny. Oh my gosh. And they're, so yeah, let's let's do the, the math here, right? So they are about a gram, a gram and a half each, the beetle is. <laughs> what, and the an car inch, maybe an inch and a half? Yeah, inch and a half length. long, okay. maybe, yeah. These are pretty large specimens. Mm -hmm. um, so these are a little larger than what we might have um, at the rest of the building. But the carcass that they're burying is up to like 350 grams. So like I always say, it's like you and your significant other burying an elephant 10 feet underground without a shovel. That's insane. Yeah, good luck. It wouldn't <laughs> happen. And they can do it in hours. Hours, yeah. Certainly overnight, yeah. They'll, they'll bury it so overnight. so incredible. And sometimes they'll have to, like, drag it sideways for a little ways because they'll bump into a rock and they'll have to come back up with it. I mean, it is hard. Oh, no. Wow. But it is, you know, that's what their, you know, purpose, I guess, is as, yeah. as this insect is they need to reproduce, right? So I got to do it one way or another. So they invest so much energy into doing this, but it's what they're after. Wow. And that kind of speaks to the larger role of a lot of insects in ecosystems throughout the world is this recycling of organic matter. It's so important. Like I said at the top of the show, insects don't get enough respect. They don't get enough. They got a bad rep because they're a little bit spooky and scary. But Right. And also you just, you don't see a lot of them. Or the ones that you do see might be the annoying ones like mosquitoes or something. <laughs> or like a wasp or something that people are afraid of for a reason. But these beetles, like I've never seen one in the wild. Or I mean, I guess this is a bad example. But any sort of barium beetle that is endangered you don't see them right like you don't. unless you're out looking for them intentionally right. yeah yeah okay so the adults bring the food down and then they lay eggs yep well first they have to prepare the carcass oh wow okay there is so much work Whoa. that goes into this wow it's yeah ridiculous. tell us more so they you know let's say it's a bird they'll have to rip all the feathers off of it if it's a mammal they'll have to rip all the fur off of it and they what? work it into like a meatball. There's no other better term for it. They work it into like this meatball. It's like, I, you know, I've dug them up in the course of my work here. Um, and it looks like 
just a gray wad of soil. Like you wouldn't even recognize it. Okay. Except sometimes there's like a rat tail. <laughs> 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 and at the same time, they are covering it in, this is where it gets juicy, uh, oral and anal secretions that Ooh. are antimicrobial. Wow. So it helps to prevent the carcass from rotting. Which is important because you want to feed this to your baby. So, one, it needs to be fresh. And also, the less stinky it is, the less it's attracting other scavengers oh, yeah. that are going to steal your baby's food. So, they, yeah. So they rip the fur and feathers off. Are they using their legs or mandibles? Like, how do they They're do mandibles that? for that okay. one. Yeah, they've got really sharp mandibles that... uh They'll bite you too. <laughs> <laughs> how long does it take them to, like, defeather or defer an animal? This whole know? process takes, like less than one full day like the whole wow. burying it prepping it coating it and secretions all of that happens in less than 24 hours okay and also how does That's anybody incredible. know that they're underground right <laughs> <laughs> well i know that because when we breed them in captivity we can have a closer look at it okay so we can get into how we breed in captivity in a little bit i okay. guess but yeah yeah Okay. And you did mention earlier, you said sometimes you guys will go and get founders from Nebraska. Mm -hmm. Is that the only place in the country that they're currently found? Right. So historically, you could find them anywhere east of the Rocky Mountain Range in the United States and actually in three Canadian provinces. And right now, they only exist in about 10% of that range mm. in just a few counties in a handful of states. So we're, they're mostly out in the plains. you got like Nebraska, um, South Dakota... Arkansas, there. I think the Texas population is completely gone now. Is it habitat loss? It is, yeah. It's a whole bunch of things, really. You know, it's not a simple answer. Okay. I always call it a cocktail of things, but it's essentially it's human interference, right? So, okay. habitat loss, habitat fragmentation in general is a big deal. Um, also, loss of um, carrion sources is wow. an issue. So, even the passenger pigeon going extinct back oh in gosh. the early 1900s is believed to have impacted the burying beetle. Wow. Um, yep. So it's a whole bunch of stuff. So it's definitely an uphill battle. But they do still exist in some areas. So there is still habitat for them that is viable. So we're trying to figure out exactly what it is and how and if we can even mimic that in their historic range and bring them back to places mm -hmm. like Ohio. Well, Okay. <laughs> and we and we do, or you have, or you've been doing this program in Ohio. Yes, we yes. have been. Yeah. Are there so are there wild ones, or are they mostly here at the zoo? So in Cincinnati, they're mostly here at the zoo. Okay, but yeah, do we? Okay. Do we want to? No, I don't want to go into that yet. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I want to finish, finish something. I'm curious. After the adults lay the eggs, and I might have missed a whole step in there. I don't know. <laughs> do they? How long do they live? Do they survive that? that season do they survive the winter when are they doing this yeah so the adults live once they bury the carcass they'll lay eggs nearby it the eggs will hatch the larvae will crawl to the carcass oh so it's not on the carcass not necessarily okay. not necessarily but um they will crawl to the carcass and the parents actually stick around and help them eat that there's is so cool. parental care which is like really rare in the insect yeah, world definitely. so there's like only a handful of examples that i can think of um, so they'll actually tend to their babies, their larvae, uh, while they develop. And usually dad leaves at about 10 days. He's okay. like, okay, I'm good and I'm out. And then mom <laughs> will actually stick around until the larvae wander off into the soil nearby to pupate, which is like around 14 to 20 days. Okay. And then about two months later, brand new beetles pop up out of the ground when they're done metamorphosing into adults underground. 
And how many eggs do they lay? How many larvae? They can lay anywhere from one to 50, and they'll actually lay a number of eggs um, dependent on the size of the carcass that they bury, which oh, is pretty wow. wild, right? So oh. if they bury a huge carcass, they'll lay more eggs. If they bury a tiny carcass, they'll lay fewer eggs. If they lay too many eggs, they'll actually cannibalize the younger, weaker larvae so that the older, larger larvae have a better chance. That's amazing. For an insect, right? That's, That's pretty cool. To, yeah. 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 <laughs> That's wild. It's just amazing the control they can have over all of that and yep. know what's best. Wow. That's incredible. <laughs> well, oh, and one thing that I, I always like to point out at this point in the in the story of their life cycle, too, is they have other bugs that live on them. <gasps> if I flip them over, you can see a couple crawling around. They're these teeny tiny little brown <gasps> mites. Yeah. Yeah. Those are called phoretic mites. They're not a bad thing. They're a good thing. They have a symbiotic relationship with the beetles. No way. So the, the mites, what they'll do is they will breed at the same time the beetles do, and they'll eat fly eggs and maggots <gasps> that help protect the carcass for the cool. beetles larvae. Wow. That is insane. You, you would see a mite <laughs> crawling around a beetle and you'd be like, oh no, it's a parasite. Oh, no, it's it's hurting it this beetle. Yeah. yeah, but that is fascinating. Wow. These guys are so cool. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you agree. <laughs> I do, I do. That's so cool. Okay, so now they pupate yep. and they come, you said they come out of the ground. Yep, they come out of the ground about two months after the whole process started. And one individual beetle will live for just about a year in the wild. Okay. So they will overwinter as adults. They'll um, bury themselves underground. They might come up on warm days to find food. But for the most part, they're underground until late spring, early summer, when they come back out of the ground, they find a carcass, they find a mate, repeat the whole process again. Okay. And they most likely won't survive that second winter then? They or? probably would not survive that second winter. Okay. Just their longevity is not that. Mm. Yeah. Okay. In so the it's about south, a year, give or take? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And now in the south, where the warm season is extended, there's been population studies where they found that the southern populations will have two generations a year. So they'll breed in like early spring and then again in like early fall. And then the second generation will overwinter and start the whole thing over again. Okay. Interesting. So you mentioned that they have to, you hope that the male and female come together and find this carcass. Do they have any way to find one another? Like we've talked about cicadas and they make this crazy obvious noise to find one another. <laughs> yeah. Most insects yeah. don't that I know of make noises, at least that we can hear. How are they finding one another? They find one another uh, mostly at the carcass because they're all attracted to that, okay. but also they can let off pheromones okay. um, mm -hmm. that the others can smell. Wow. So. <laughs> like some perfume and yeah. cologne. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> And the males, um, or the females, they'll both make a little bit of noise. When we breed them in captivity and they get excited, they will stridulate, is what it's called, where they're rubbing their oh. bodies against their wings, and it makes this, mm. like, ear, ear noise. It's really cute. <laughs> <laughs> so they only cool. do that during breeding time? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's like, hey, girl, I'm ready. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Communicating. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, so I think we should get into the real, I mean, this has all been really cool, but I think it's amazing that you have a breeding program here and Definitely. that you're running that. And it's like, like we mentioned with the manatee program, like contributing directly back to a population and, you know, saving these and keeping them alive. And so how did you get into that? How did somebody discover that they are endangered? Who was paying attention, you know, a hundred years ago to know how many there were and then noticed that there were less? I don't understand. Well, so this is actually good that we talked about insect collections earlier because that's how they oh. first caught on to the decline in bearing beetle populations, or especially with the American bearing beetle. 
So universities have collections, right, over the years, every year, and American burying beetles started disappearing from collections as wow. time progressed. And so they realized in the 80s, like, hey, something's going on. This beetle isn't showing up in collections mm -hmm. anymore. We're not able to find them. Like, and then they started doing population studies where you would basically set pitfall traps and bait it with a carcass okay. and see who comes to the trap. And so that's initially how they figured out that something was wrong. Mm-hmm. If I were going out, how would I find one just in general? If I were if back in the eighties <laughs> looking to make this collection, would I go out like in the dark <laughs> in the woods and just maybe come across one on the ground? Well, for different types of insects, there's different ways to find them if you're out trying to. One way is to set like light traps at night, these big bright lights, and you set up a white sheet and it reflects light and insects will uh, fly to it. Uh, the best way though to catch things like carrion or burying beetles is to set what we call a pitfall trap. Okay. So it's basically you would bury like a bucket in the ground, throw a carcass in there, put a cover on it and see mm -hmm. who falls in. Okay. That makes total sense. Yeah. I just didn't know if there was like a time of day or like people were just coming across them, you know, at a certain time or, but yeah. you kind of have to actually work for it. You wouldn't just come across <laughs> them. Okay. I <laughs> have, I've had friends and family send me pictures before like, oh my gosh, I found this dead mouse in my barn and look what's on it. And oh, it's burying cool. beetles. So but oh, very cool. For yeah. the most part, you're not going to just bump into gotcha. them. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, you know, have some insects you see because you're just out, like, I don't yeah. know, doing yeah. whatever at night you might see them. But okay. Interesting. Okay, so we discovered, somebody discovered or noticed, people were paying attention, that they weren't seeing them. And then did people start working on something for that? Or is that something the zoo started? So they were federally listed as endangered in 1989. Okay. And shortly after that, this was before my time at the zoo, but shortly after that, uh, the curator at the time, Randy Morgan, um, reached out to Fish and Wildlife Service and other people at other zoos were also starting to think like, hey, maybe we can do something. And basically, there was a recovery program okay. being built mm -hmm. in the very early 90s, I think like 1991. And Randy wanted us to be a part of it, right? So um, the plan, the original recovery plan was essentially, I'm very much paraphrasing here, was essentially, <laughs> yeah. okay, let's go find some in the wild where they still exist bring them into captivity and breed a whole, whole bunch of them and then release them into their historic range and do studies afterwards to see how many we continue to find. That's very <laughs> basic yeah. terms there, but that's essentially the recovery program as it was wow. laid out. Easier said than done. Right? Definitely <laughs> easier said than done. Yeah, just figuring out how to breed them in captivity was an uphill battle. So yeah, kudos sure. to the people that figured all of that out. I think that was Andrea Kozol at the time. Wow. And then you mentioned that you have to make sure you're breeding specific ones together. If you're finding them in the wild and putting them together, how do you know? How would you? Yeah, you don't ever know with 100% certainty, but like when we go out and get founders now, we will consider one individual trap site related to one another. Oh, we know okay. they're probably not, but it's like, okay, if we got this male from this bucket and this female from the same bucket, let's not breed them together. Let's okay. assume they're related because we got them in the exact same location. Let's breed sense. them with a trap site capture that's like two miles away or okay. something. Okay, I see. Mm -hmm. And wow. you may have mentioned it, but how many other facilities are participating in this yeah, breeding and release? Yeah, there's, um, including us, there's four. So it's okay. the Cincinnati Zoo, the Wilds, uh, who we partner with a ton on this since they're really close. The Roger Williams Park Zoo out in Rhode Island and the St. Louis Zoo awesome. out in Missouri, right? 
So are you talking with the, you know, insect keepers there and working through things with them or do you guys have it pretty set? <laughs> no, we talk, we talk pretty frequently. It's not like a Saturday phone call, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anytime I bump into trouble or um, if we do end up going out and getting founders, we'll collaborate with other institutions okay. to make sure like you guys are good. You don't need anything. Everything. Okay. I know the Roger Williams Park Zoo. Um, there's another population that still exists, ABBs in the wild on Block Island, out in Rhode Island. Hmm. So the Fish and Wildlife Service wanted to keep sort of the eastern and western population separate. Okay, right? oh, Just in sense. case there's some major difference between them. So they kind of have more separate project going on. Okay. So we don't really trade beetles with them. We okay. definitely trade knowledge with them. Yeah. <laughs> but we, the other three institutions over here on this side of the country, uh, we trade a lot more beetles. Cool. <laughs> so what does the hands-on process look like? Yeah, so breeding them in captivity, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so how we do that is basically emulate what happens in the wild. Um, we carefully select the male and female, though. We don't give them the option. Um, and we place them in a five-gallon bucket that is full of soil, and we place a rat carcass in there, and we let them do their thing, hopefully. <laughs> and we come back the next morning, and if they're successful, they have buried and prepared the rat, and it's underneath the surface of the bucket. And the buckets, are they here or are they at... Okay, they're here. They're here, yes. Where do you have space for all of Well, it's not in our building. Okay. Yeah. Over <laughs> oh, the same thing. Yeah, Jenna knows how small the insect yeah, I was like, is. Wait, yeah. What? Um, they are actually in jungle trails. Oh, so no there's way. like a separate area. I had no idea. Yeah. It is a very small room. Okay. Um, but it's lined with shelves and we have buckets, five-gallon buckets full of really good soil for them. And all the beetles are stored down there. And Are you doing it at a different... Um, like, is it one night of the year you do all of this, you give all of them this carcass and place them all together, or do you just pick and choose on certain... It's definitely seasonal, okay. so we definitely breed them um, at the same time they would breed in the wild. So okay. when we brought back these founders, we bred them in like early to mid-June. And then what we do in captivity that is a little bit different is we go two generations a year. And the major reason is that there is no winter inside, right? Yeah. So we could potentially uh, find some way to simulate winter, but it'd be really tricky to do successfully. Yeah. And since the beetles aren't being chilled naturally outside in the environment, they live a shorter lifespan. Oh, just because they aren't going sense. through that kind of diapause, their metabolism isn't slowing down, so they're basically their lifespan is a little bit shorter in captivity. Interesting. So what we do to counteract that is we have two generations a year. And okay. then the other benefit of that is that we end up with a lot more beetles. Yeah. <laughs> so I have just 200 beetles, not just, but I have 200 beetles just from the first round, so to speak, of captive rearing. And then when I breed them a second time, I could have as many as I want. I try to limit it to like 500 beetles. I was about to say, you have a goal that you set every year that you, your target for beetle Yeah, numbers. we try to have at least like 20 to 25 successful broods total, and those can produce anywhere from one to 50 offspring, so. Mm. But if you, let's say you have 200, is that like 100 males and 100 females? I guess you can't control that because the ones that are being born are hatched you don't know what the ratio will be. I don't, although weirdly enough, it's almost always evenly split. Wow. Yeah. So then when you're matching them, is it like you do 20 buckets the week 
of the, <laughs> the first week of June, and then you wait for them, and they're like, okay, you guys are done, and you yeah. do another 20? It's kind of like a giant puzzle, you know, that you have to piece together. I usually try to set up, like, anywhere from 5 to 10 at okay. a time, see who's successful, see which beetles were successful, because I don't want to breed just one, you know, previous generation's brood, because right. I, I want to... I want to increase diversity, if that makes sense. So, you know, if say we have bucket one, and I've bred a male and a female each from bucket one, and they were successful, I probably won't breed anymore from okay. that bucket. I'll move on to two and try to pair them up with things that aren't closely related to them. Yeah, what this is where the spreadsheet comes in again. Wow, yeah. <laughs> what percentage of pairs are successful? Um, like, yeah, when you said 25, that didn't seem like as high as I was expecting. Yeah, I would think like 60 or 70, but... It really depends on how far removed they are from... Founders, oh, which okay. is interesting, right? So, yeah. over the past ten years that I've been doing this, I've noticed that like the very first generation, if you're bringing founders in from the wild, hundred percent success rate. Every last one of them is like, rat, mate, I'm ready to go. Let's okay. do this. The second generation, it drops to maybe like eighty-five percent. I don't know the reason why. Huh. Could be dietary, could be any number of things, but it drops a little bit, and then. The further along you get, like, gosh, like, sixth, seventh, eighth generation, it's, like, 5% success rate. It's wow. really bad. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. So the closer you are to a founder, by the time you actually reintroduce them to the wild, the better. Okay. Which is why we continue to take yeah. some founders. Mm -hmm. And you are releasing them here in Ohio? We are, yes. Okay. We are releasing them in Ohio. How does so, that work? <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so we breed them in captivity. We Let's say next spring I'm going to have 500 beetles. Um, we would take almost all of those 500 beetles and we would reintroduce them to Ohio. Now we're switching gears and COVID has messed up so many things. Oh, <laughs> we can no. get into that, course, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> let's just take a step back and say it's 2018. So we would take all of those beetles, pair them up before we leave the zoo. So we know, okay, this male and this female rubber band them, their containers together, okay. uh, but they're good to go. Like duct tape their containers, not <laughs> yeah. the beetles together <laughs> so that our volunteers know, okay, these two beetles go into this hole with this rat. And so we take them out to a place called Fernald Preserve. So this is a nearby nature preserve that we identified as actually really good habitat for the burying beetle. And we decided that because we did base baseline surveys. We did surveys out there to see if there were other species of burying beetle on grounds, and okay. there were tons. So okay. it was like, oh, awesome. cool, there's habitat here for them. There's carcasses obviously available for burying beetles, so let's try it. So we take them out to the release site, and we we cheat a little bit for them. <laughs> we make it easy for them. We dig a hole. We okay. use like um, it's funny. It's a tool that you use on a golf course. It's a golf hole cutter. Oh, so they cut the, the cups in the ground with. Okay. So we use those. We dig this like little plug out of the ground, and we place the rat carcass in there and the male and female beetle in there. We make sure that they're interested in each other and they're not crawling out. <laughs> and then we carefully cover that whole system with um, like a piece of cardboard or we'll use like those peat pots that you start your seeds in in the spring. We'll turn one upside down and cover it basically with something biodegradable and then we'll cover it with soil and then we cover the entire area because we'll do this like one right next to the other maybe a foot apart and we'll cover that whole area with mesh so that things like raccoons can't oh. sneak in there and steal the carcasses before the beetles have a chance okay. to do what they got to do. Yeah. Yeah. And then cross our fingers. <laughs> yeah. And when do you come back and check on them again? Yeah. So what we do typically is we come back about two weeks later and we'll dig up a certain percent, maybe like five to 10% of what we put out there. 
and I mean carefully so that it, we're not permanently disturbing it, but we'll um, carefully dig it out and see if it was successful and we'll know that it's successful if we find larvae on it. Okay. Mm. Yep. So they have these big, huge, white grubs okay. <laughs> um, that you would find on the prepared rat carcass. Okay. And so then we'll just extrapolate that information and say, okay, 45% of these broods we believe were successful and this was the average number of larvae. So this reintroduction produced 800 beetles today. Wow, okay. Mm -hmm. And then they get to live their lives out there or are you taking some back to That's keep it. it going here? Yeah, they get to live their lives out there. Okay. And then we come back and do survey work with those pitfall traps that we talked about earlier Yeah. that we'll put in the ground, we'll bait with a carcass, and then we'll come and check on the, carc or the, the trap and see if we've caught any American-bearing beetles. Okay. And so the ones that we take out for reintroduction, we'll actually mark them so that we'll know if we catch them later that same year. Oh, that's one we put out here. That's oh. awesome. It's still here. That's good news. But this isn't like a brand new baby, so to speak, that was born here. Okay. That makes sense. Yep. That's genius. Yeah. yeah. So if we catch one that's unmarked, it's like, whoa, cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so how's the population at the preserve been over the year? Like, when did you start this? We started reintroductions at Fernald in 2013. Okay. And I mean, there is so much to learn and so many variables to figure out. Definitely. Um, we have had really successful reintroductions based on larval success. We have had really unsuccessful reintroductions mm. based on larval success. We've had floods uh, disrupt the entire process, oh, no. which was heartbreaking. Um, but we had COVID dis yeah, disrupt the entire yeah, process. We'll get which, there yeah. in a minute because <laughs> that's just like upside down now. So. Um, it was going really well. We started to capture unmarked beetles in 2016 was the first year. So wow. when we finally got it all figured out, okay, this is the time of year, this is the location, because even the location at the site matters because the soil quality matters oh. and all these different factors matter. Temperature matters. So there's so many factors. We got that figured out and then we started capturing unmarked burying beetles on grounds, which was fantastic. And um, it went really well in 2016, 17, 18, 19. It actually dipped a little bit, if I remember correctly, and then COVID, right? So, mm -hmm. <laughs> And then 2020, we could not go out there and do any of this. Why did, it was outside, why did that impact it? Well, I mean, at the time, right, nobody really understood as much as we understand now. Just being extra careful. Yeah, and okay. also it's the property is owned by the Department of Energy, and so we're at their mercy when it comes okay. to their rules and regulations. Mm -hmm. So that they just want extra people out there. Yeah, and... just it is what it is, you know. Okay. And also, we, with financial reasons, couldn't bring in our seasonal technician to go out there and do the survey work. So, oh, I see. Yeah. There's so much that goes into it. Yeah. I even know. Being, working at the zoo, I haven't even realized or heard about. I have a question that you maybe have said, and I just didn't wrap my brain around it. But okay, you have 200 beetles right now. Yes. Maybe it's roughly that. But let's say 200. <laughs> 213, but okay. okay. <laughs> yes. So when you are going to breed them, or, re sorry, if you're going to put them out in the wild, are you only taking a certain amount that you have here at the zoo? Or how are you keeping the population, or ha always having some here at the zoo, but also putting them out back into the wild, but you're not collecting the ones from the wild here? <laughs> so are you going back and getting founders? Okay. We are, yes. But in general, though, ideally, we would like to hold back 
a certain percent of that last group of beetles. So let's say in the spring we have 500 beetles, we might put out 450 of them. Okay. And we'll hold back some that we continue to breed or that we'll even trickle in fresh genetics from either another institution mm -hmm. or okay. from the founders that we get out of like Nebraska, something like that. Okay, that mm -hmm. makes sense. What about like you, you had mentioned as you see the founders go farther generations past the founders, you have issues with not producing as many larvae. Are you able to mitigate that by breeding like one, say, fourth generation beetle with a founder? Does that We help? typically try to reserve founders for founders, but okay. if we take like the F1 and breed it to, am I saying that right? I think the F1 is like the first generation after a founder, right? I think so, yeah. yeah. So we would take the F1 and breed it to that F4. Okay. And that would increase the likelihood that they're going to reproduce. Interesting. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. Do you have any idea the numbers or like what it was and how many beetles exist now? Or is there like at, at Fernal, you mean? Or no, at, in, oh. in general, I guess. <laughs> <it's a> really, <laughs> that's an actual too, number. I have no idea. Okay. I will say anecdotally that when we go out to Nebraska, we were lucky enough to get to go again this past year. Oh, good. Um, we set, I think it was like 17 different trap locations. And some were a lot more successful than others, but we did capture American bearing beetles in every last one of these traps. Oh, good. So this is in like the like central Nebraska, like the sand hills of Nebraska. Okay. And one of the traps I think we caught, it was like fifty-two individuals. Wow. I mean, no it was way. totally awesome. It's awesome. Just opening yeah. up that trap and it's just like crawling with all these <laughs> huge American bearing beetles. And I'm like, I could barely get you to breed yeah. in captivity, but okay, you're doing all right here. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. So the reason the program was started is because they're endangered. But recently, they may have been lifted from the endangered list. And we talked about this yeah. with their manatees. So it's important though that they stay on that endangered list, right? I think so personally. Yeah. yeah. So they were downlisted. Okay. They aren't completely unlisted, but they were downlisted from endangered to threatened. I believe it's official now. Um, and. I gotta say though, like nothing has changed with their current population in the wild. Like we have these two experimental reintroduction sites, but none of that is completely conclusive and we don't know what impact, if any, it's gonna have. And nothing, like I said, has changed with the other ranges that do exist right. um, in the more western half of the United, or uh, western part of their range. So it's, it's a head scratcher. Yeah. <laughs> I disagree with it personally, but... Nothing has changed as far as our breed and release program either. Okay. I mean, obviously we have hiccups with COVID. Yeah. But we are switching gears and actually um, we're going to be taking our captive reared beetles for reintroduction up to the wilds. Oh, okay. So that was one of the other organizations we said earlier that works with them. Um, they have had even better success finding fresh so to speak, okay. unmarked beetles on, <laughs> on site at the wilds. So awesome. they've been really successful with their breeding program. They've been super successful with their recaptures. So it's like, let's just go ahead and put all of our eggs in that basket. Okay. We didn't want to at first. We wanted to try for null. Yeah. And we did start to see a dip there. Um, even when you compare our really successful year, when I think we found like 18 beetles, they were finding like 30, 40, 50, 60. Okay. Oh, so wow. it's like, okay. Okay, I think they've got the better habitat up there, mm -hmm. so maybe we should give them our beetles too. Yeah, yeah. and that's a you know part of being a part of something like this. You kind mm -hmm. of have to live and learn, and then figure out what's best, and then do what's best for them. So Absolutely, definitely. do what's best for the species. Definitely, it's definitely frustrating what you had said about the endangered species list, though. Like, it's really disheartening to see a species get 
unlisted when we haven't really seen that much change in their population status. And you would like to think we'd be more preventative and we'd wait to hold off the downlisting until they're really strong and really doing good. But so much protection comes with it. It's really important. It, yes, it is yeah. incredibly important. Not just the actual physical protections, but the funding that's available mm. to programs. And if you lose that protection status, that funding is also oftentimes lost. Yeah, that's what hopefully, you know, we can bring awareness in just a lot of different ways. But if people have never seen an American bear and beetle <laughs> or, you know, like, I think it's cool to talk yeah. about them and let people know that. That was a question I had. I, I, are they viewable to the public, or are all our American bearing beetles behind the scenes breeding? They are all, unfortunately, behind the okay. scenes. We do have some specimens that expired on their own that were um, placed on display in the world of the insect. So you can see specimens there, and there's currently there's an interpretive wall that talks about it. And we really do need to update that, so hopefully we'll get <laughs> on that now. Um, it's a little outdated, um, but it does tell the story of what's going on here. We have tried to put them um, out for the public to see. They prefer cooler temperatures during the day, oh. and they are nocturnal, like I said, yeah. so it was like they would just bury themselves the all day. And like, <laughs> I've never really thought about yeah. that. The insects that you do display, there's probably a reason that some of them yeah. they're aren't all, displayed. <laughs> exactly. Every, almost everything in our building is like tropical Okay. And loves warm weather and is diurnal. Yeah, so, that yeah. makes sense. The bearing beetles were like, nah, we're going to bury. <laughs> <laughs> do what we do. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely makes them tough to display for sure. Yes. <laughs> That's a good question. Oh my gosh. This has been so interesting. Do you have a quiz for us, Mark? Of course I do. Okay. I don't I've even know why I ask anymore. What do I ask? I've always, <laughs> I've always got oh, trivia no. for All you right. guys. I'm ready to fail miserably. <laughs> so obviously we're talking to our, our team leader from World of the Insect, specifically about American bearing beetles. So a lot of this is insect beetle related. Uh oh. So get ready. <laughs> Pressure's on. <laughs> All right. We got five questions today. Question number one. This was a fact that I learned when I was studying in college that was just so mind-blowing to me could not believe it how many species of beetles are currently known in the world i truly have absolutely <laughs> no idea but i would i'm going to guess do you know the answer i do but now i'm second guessing okay. myself i'm going to guess one million one million is generous yeah. guess all right mandy Okay, so I know it starts with 300, but I'm like, is it 300,000 or 300 million? That sounds insane. It does. But I think it's Either correct. One. I don't know. Is it the 300 million? It's 300,000. Oh, shoot. I'm way overshot. <laughs> 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 I, I knew it was 300-something. We got two Okay, <laughs> there's not okay. even that many species of insects. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Crazy diverse. So right? current <laughs> estimates say there's about 300,000, give or take, currently known to science. But Jenny, your guess of a million, some scientists really think there's closer to <gasps> one and a half million species yeah, of beetles. Wow. They just aren't known yet. That's another thing. <laughs> in general, I was talking to somebody else about this recently. Okay, say so you're in the depths of the ocean and you just find this animal you've never seen before how do you know you just haven't seen it before or it's not been discovered right so that can be applied especially to insects when there's so many how do you how i have no you idea know? you're like well i just have, i haven't seen this beetle before i don't know the answer to that but i would assume it it goes through some sort of like collaborative vetting process through like universities or places of research 
I don't know that for a fact, but that's, that's what I would guess. Incredible. That's what I would guess, yeah. especially in the ocean. An insect, I guess you could collect and be like, Here hey, has anyone else seen <laughs> yeah. this? But if you're like discovering a new fish and you don't catch it and it's just swimming away. How do you know? <laughs> you know I'm so curious. Okay. But no, this number is just so mind-blowing to me. 300,000. So for like people, you people out them. there who don't really know any better, you might think like 300,000 is not that many, right? Like... For comparison's sake, there are about 65,000 species of vertebrates. Period. So if you combine mammals, fish, birds, amphibians, and reptiles, there are 65,000 species. Wow. And there's 300,000 just just beetles. Beetles. Mm -hmm. Just beetles. And like I was asking, like, oh, do I need to go out when it's 65 degrees, you know, (laughs) around 7 p.m. in this specific park? Will I see an American variant beetle? No, you have to attract it so i'm sure there are so many beetles we don't know what attracts them and they're just hanging out in the dark somewhere definitely (laughs) definitely there's a whole ecosystem underground at play that yeah we have no idea about wild yeah about one in four of all known species is a beetle species wow wild to me that is wild all right on to the next question question number two mandy you actually mentioned the answer to this one but so I'm gonna see. If, I'm gonna see Uh-oh. if Jenna, how closely she was listening. Right? Watch me get it wrong now. So, <laughs> so, relating specifically to the American bearing beetle, some scientists have theorized that the extinction of this species has led to a decline in the American bearing beetle. <gasps> the passenger pigeon. The passenger Yay. pigeon. Yes. I learned. You're so correct. <laughs> the passenger pigeon. It's a bird that used to number in the millions throughout the United States and tied to the Cincinnati Zoo because the last passenger pigeon known to the world was Martha. She actually passed away right here at the Cincinnati Zoo. So crazy. I know. Amazing how much one species can have an effect on on Mm. others. It's all related. It all ties together. It is. All right. Getting away from the American bearing beetle to another beetle species. There is a beetle in the Namibian desert that is able to produce what out of thin air? Oh, Lord. It's a magic trick. Water. That was my guess, too. Water. You got it. <gasps> How? Got it. Like, it's the desert. That's right. really important. Okay. <laughs> so the Namibian desert beetle, it's able to do this. It does a behavior called fog basking, where it stands up. I watched a video of it. It's fascinating. It stands <laughs> up on its front legs, and it leans into the wind. It's got these hydrophilic bumps that attract water on its back. What? So as the wind, like, blows across this beetle's In back. In a desert. There's an... In a desert. It takes a while, but yeah, eventually a water droplet will form on the beetle's back and it just slurps kind of slurps it up. Yeah, slurps it up, drips right <gasps> down to its mouth. That's crazy. It's wild. <gasps> what it's is wild. it called? It's called the Namib Desert Beetle. I need to look it up. The Namib, yeah, I definitely recommend watching a video of this because it's insane. Wow. It's cool. insane. Insects are fascinating. Yeah. That's, <laughs> That's right. You could For study sure. them forever. Yeah. I've never even heard of that beetle. Yes. Yeah. Y'all, there's only a million species out there. How do you know? Yeah. Come on. You sure there's not 300 million? <laughs> <laughs> there might be. All right. Getting a little off track here. The Volkswagen Beetle oh, no. is a very famous car. A lot of people refer to them as the punch buggy. Volkswagen Beetle, when was it first made? When was the first Volkswagen Beetle made? I don't, I, I, I'm always like, I can't guess correctly <laughs> on this <laughs> history in general. How long have cars been around? <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know. That'd be a good starting point. <laughs> All right. I would guess like 1958. 1958 for Mandy, All right. 
1927. It's right in the middle of you guys. Uh. Okay. So the Volkswagen Beetle was made in Germany in 1938. Okay. That early, wow. Yeah, they've been around for a long time. Been around for a while. <laughs> All right, we couldn't have a question about Beatles without mentioning this semi-famous band. I knew it from oh, no, Liverpool, England. The Beatles. <laughs> Ever heard of them? They're kind of famous. <laughs> the Beatles, this rock band from Liverpool, England, founded in 1960. Who were the original four members? Oh, you got this right. No. Oh no! <laughs> I mean, I'm sure if I really sat here and thought about it. Paul McCartney. Yeah. All right, there's one. Oh, I wasn't going to give last name, so... Paul McCartney. Ringo. I guess I could. Yeah. Ringo Starr. There's the second. Yeah. You got it. Help me out, Mandy. You're two. You're two. You're halfway there. <laughs> John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Right. Yep. 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 John, you know John's last name? Uh, oh, gosh. Oh, my gosh. Oh, come on. You know it. There's so many people it's mad just at us right now. We're definitely dating ourselves, right? Oh Here we go. We're John Lennon. Okay. John, oh, my John God. Thank Lennon. you. Duh. And Duh. George Harrison. Yes. I didn't know George. I won't lie. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys have a favorite Beatles song? No. No? <laughs> Do you? Yeah, my, my parents and aunts and uncles are really into the Beatles. Yeah. Yellow Submarine's probably okay. my favorite. Oh, that's a good one. That gets stuck in my head all the time. <laughs> one. Octopus's Garden, I'd say. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Classic. Oh my gosh. All right, that's all I got for you guys today. So many people are oh, we got, screaming you guys got in their cars right now. Yes. <laughs> two, two and a half. I'll give you half Ooh, a credit. That was a okay. rough one. So, yeah, that was a tough one, I know. Whoops. Yikes. You got two quiz. of the four Beatles, or three out of the four Beatles, so, like, you okay. got two and three quarters. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, well, thank you. This has been so interesting. Is there anything else we missed that you think people should know about American Berry Beatles or you wanted to chat about? I mean, not about their story, necessarily. We could talk about what's important um, that you can do at home, I guess. We didn't really touch on that yet. Yeah, I was going to ask. Oh, What so can sorry. I do? <laughs> yeah, what no, I just do? didn't know if you had anything else you wanted. But what's something I can do to be helpful to Beatles or American Berry Beatles in general? Um, yeah, so, you know, I know you've touched on plant for pollinators with other insects before. Still important, but I would focus more on just limit your pesticide use, right? If it's not necessary, don't do it. And very often it is not necessary. And then we did talk about lights earlier a little yeah. bit. I was talking about light trapping. So there's a really simple, really awesome way you can help with our native insects. And it'll save you money, too. You could switch your porch lights to be motion-censored so yeah. that you don't attract as many bugs to your porch when they should be off doing their own buggy things. I love it. <laughs> and it actually helps the migratory mm -hmm. birds. Yes, yeah. And, yeah, saves you money. And... I mean, maybe it keeps you safer, too. People get spooked when they yeah, come on. I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully nobody has to worry about it's that. It's an easy switch, though. It's really an easy switch. That it has is. has a big effect. So yeah. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Um, well, yeah, I was going to say, do you have anything else? I got nothing. All right. Mandy, okay. thank you so much for like taking that. your That's... time to join us today. Like. It was fascinating bringing us some friends to see. Yeah, I loved having the Beatles here. Yeah. They were like scratching against their, their <laughs> sides here. I wonder if we caught that on the mic. We'll see. They're like, we want to come out and tell you about us. <laughs> Thank you guys yes. so much for having me. Yes. This was awesome. Thank you. And yeah, I love your What Can I Do? Super simple. So. Thank you, Mandy, for being here. Yes. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you all for listening at home. Until next time. See ya.